Hello, everyone, and welcome to the thrilling adventures of Superman, a podcast where Superman still stands for truth, justice, and the American way. This is episode 59, and my name is Michael Bradley, your host on this journey through the wacky and wonderful world that is the golden age of Superman. This episode, we're going to be looking at the 14th storyline from the Superman Daily Newspaper Strip. Plus, later in the episode, I will present a spotlight on Superman radio series actor Ned Weaver. I don't normally cover too much, you know, news or current releases on the show, at least not unless they pertain specifically to the golden age of the character, but there are two upcoming items that were recently announced that I'm really excited about, and I want to tell you about them because if they sell well, we might just get more things like them. And when they make things that I like, I'm a happy guy. First up, coming your way in December, for the first time, Superman is getting a Mr. Potato Head. Yep, you heard me right. For the first time since the toy went on sale 60 years ago, Hasbro is finally putting out a Superman-themed Mr. Potato Head. As a kid who grew up playing with and, and has many fond memories of Mr. Potato Head, and as someone who, as an adult, likes the extremely goofy Superman memorabilia, I will definitely be getting a Superman Mr. Potato Head. If it's not under the tree or in my stocking come Christmas morning, I'll probably be buying it soon afterwards. I posted on Facebook that I'll be sorely disappointed if it doesn't come with optional Clark Kent accessories, but I'll still buy it because, come on, it's a Mr. Potato Head, and that's cool. The article-slash-news release said that they're also producing Batman and Wonder Woman potato heads, and that more you know, DC heroes and villains are coming in 2013. If they produce one that looks like the Silver Age Brainiac, that might be the most awesome toy ever. Thankfully, if they end up, you know, not putting out other heroes and villains, we can pretty easily replicate a Lex Luthor figure by just buying a regular potato head and putting him in a suit. Uh, But hopefully we'll get a uh, Mr. Potato Head Lex Luthor in the battle armor because that would be pretty awesome too. Oh, and speaking of outfits, in case you're curious, from the promotional image, it looks like the Superman one will feature the classic costume with the red trunks. That could change, of course, before the toy is released, but hopefully they'll leave it with the traditional look rather than the New 52 or or the upcoming movie costume. The other thing I want to mention is a new all-ages title coming from DC, called Superman Family Adventures. It's by the team of Art Baltazar and Franco, the same guys who did the Tiny Titans book, which is ending next month. And they are also the writing team on the current Green Lantern book that ties in with the animated series. And they did a couple issues of the Young Justice title that ties into that animated series. And they had quite a lengthy run on Billy Batson and the Magic of Shazam which was out a few years ago. Uh, They were only the writing team on the Green Lantern, Young Justice, and Shazam books, but on both Tiny Titans and the upcoming Superman Family Adventures, they will be doing both writing and art. 
Tiny Titans ran for 50 issues and had a three-issue crossover with Little Archie, and it was just a whole lot of fun, each and every single issue. And I'm really looking forward to their take on Superman. It will feature the entire Superman family, as the title you know, might suggest. Superman, Superboy, Supergirl will all be there, plus we'll have Jimmy Olsen and Lois Lane, no doubt Perry White, I wouldn't be surprised if Steel shows up at some point. Even the Super Pets are going to be there. Crypto, Comet, Streaky, Beppo, even Super Turtle. Um, they've also promised all the classic Superman villains are going to show up, including Luthor, Bizarro, Brainiac, Parasite, Metallo, I would say, given it, it's an all-ages title, Mr. Mixus Pitalik will make an appearance at some point. Tiny Titans was, or or is, I guess I should say, since it's not over yet. But it, you know, it, it's a great title. It, it's definitely aimed at younger kids, but it's got a sense of humor and enough in jokes that adults can definitely enjoy it too. And it ran for 50 issues, which is longer, I think, than any all ages title that DC has put out since possibly Superman Adventures which was the book that tied in with the uh, the uh, Superman the Animated Series. Lost my train of thought there all of a sudden. Uh, technically, I guess the Justice League and, and Batman animated titles ran longer, but there were name changes and, and new series started in the middle of those, so there's kind of an asterisk on there. But either way, Tiny Titans was just great fun, and I can't wait to check out what they do with the Superman cast. The first issue is due out on May 30th, so if you know any young kids or, or you have young children of your own and you're trying to get them into comics, or if you just like fun comics, please consider giving Superman Family Adventures a try, because I think it's going to be extremely awesome. It's actually one of two titles I'm looking forward to uh, from DC in May, the other not being Superman related, but you add that to the non-DC book that I'm enjoying quite a bit right now, and one coming up in April that I, I think might be interesting, and things are, are starting to look up a little bit in my uh, current comic books. Some of you probably know I, I wasn't too thrilled with the New 52 relaunch, and I, I just haven't been too thrilled with the direction of comics as a whole lately. Um, you know, I read the first five issues of both Superman and Action Comics, and I'm going to keep reading them, but they're just not knocking my socks off. So I'm happy to see that they are putting out a couple books from DC that I am looking forward to and that I think I'll enjoy, and I'm glad that there's a couple books outside of DC that, that I'm enjoying. Uh, but of all the things that I'm looking forward to or enjoying, Superman Family Adventures is, is definitely topping that list. So again, if you have young kids or if you just like fun comics, I definitely recommend giving it a shot. Sawate. My name is Stella, and I am the host of Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Batgirl to Oracle is a podcast and site dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the Batgirl mantle for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1985. 
The goal of BTO is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Batgirl and continue on through her current tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at vintage issues of Detective Comics and Batman and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I examine Barbara Gordon's appearances in the media, such as TV, film, etc. I've been blessed to be able to interview writer Brian Q. Miller, and I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Please visit us online at batgirltooracle.net and look for us on iTunes. Thank you. I should have mentioned, from interviews I've read and heard with Balthazar and Franco, they are both big Superman fans. So I really feel like they're going to do right by the character in the upcoming book. And I'm not trying to show for him. You know, I I don't know the guys, and, and I certainly don't get any money from DC for, for pushing their books. But I'm looking forward to the title. So if it's successful, I'm going to be a happy guy. And I think a lot of people would you know, just pass right by it because the artwork is is pretty cartoonish and, and, and simple because, like I said, it's directed at young kids. But there's enough there that adults can enjoy it too. So, again, please consider giving Superman Family Adventures a try when it comes out in May. All right, so onward to the episode. This time we are on to the 14th story from the Daily Strip. It's comprised of strips 397 to 414, so, only 18 strips long, which is the shortest storyline in the dailies for more than a year at this point. And it ran April 22, 1940 to May 11, 1940. Just to look at real-world history and the fomenting World War II for a moment, on May 10th, just as this story was coming to a close, Germany began a massive offensive in invading Belgium, France, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands. And meanwhile, in the UK, Winston Churchill became Prime Minister following the resignation of Neville Chamberlain. And why it is I can say Neville Chamberlain, but I can't seem to pronounce Dennis Neville's name the same way twice, I, I, I don't know. But anyway, as for the state of the other Superman-related comics and, and media at the time, all of the comics covered on recent episodes... Uh, that'd be Action Comics number 25, Superman number 5, and the New York World's Fair comic all went on sale while this story was running. The Sunday Strip was continuing its long storyline. It's about to wrap up, though, and we'll be looking at it soon, I promise. Uh, probably around episode 62. And on the radio, uh, let's see, the storyline where Jimmy Olsen debuted came to a close and airplane disasters at Bridger Field ran its course. Our story here in the dailies has been given the title The Big Boss and was written by Jerry Siegel, of course. The first half of the story was penciled by Wayne Boring. The second half was penciled by Paul Cassidy and Paul Loretta likely did inks on the whole thing. So once more we have a whole lot of hands in the artistic kitchen this time. As our story opens, it's noon, and Lois Lane is hungry. So she decides to throw old Clark Kent a bone and allow him to take her to lunch. Clark, too excited to realize that she probably just wants a free lunch, gladly accepts. 
and soon the two are seated at a restaurant in such a place that at a nearby table is a man named Pinelli. Lois recognizes Pinelli and explains to Clark and the audience how he just got out of prison because he used to be a big shot back during the days of Prohibition. Pinelli gets up and heads to a back room of the restaurant and Lois wants to follow. But Clark cautions her, saying that Pinelli is a bad dude and no longer news anyway, so they should just let sleeping dogs lie. Not wanting Clark's wet blanket to ruin her parade, Lois trips the waiter as he walks by. The waiter blames Clark, who tries to claim innocence, but only gets punched in the face by the waiter for his trouble. In all the commotion, Lois slips into the back room and is soon confronted by Pinelli and a group of bad-looking thugs. When questioned, Lois says she was just looking for the manager before getting thrown out. As she leaves, Clark is paying the waiter $10 for the damage caused when he was tripped, and Lois gets all uppity that Clark is paying $10 for a 90-cent meal before storming out of the restaurant. Once outside, Lois apologizes to Clark for the inconvenience in the restaurant. And I like how getting punched in the face is but a mere inconvenience to Lois. But she then tells Clark that she didn't learn anything, while also thinking how she'd like to get rid of him. Clark then chews her out for being, you know, insane, and takes his leave while thinking to himself that he's wise to her because he saw Pinelli as well. Clark slips into a nearby alley and switches to Superman, and then leaps to the top of the building to listen in with his super hearing. Meanwhile, Lois circles back around to the restaurant and hides outside the window, using her regular old human hearing to eavesdrop on Pinelli. Inside the restaurant, Pinelli tells his goons how soon it'll be just like the old days. He'll be in charge again, knocking off anyone who gets in his way. His goons poo-poo the idea, saying methods have changed and guns are harder to come by these days. Thankfully, though, Pinelli has a plan. They're going to raid the Caxton warehouse and steal the cache of government weapons stored inside. One of the goons tries to leave, saying that it's too dangerous of a plan, but Pinelli pops him in the jaw, and the others decide to go along with Pinelli's idea, lest they get the same treatment. Back outside, Lois starts to leave to report the scoop, but is caught by the waiter, who brings her inside before Pinelli. Learning she's a reporter from the press card in her purse, Pinelli tells the waiter to lock her in the cellar, and they'll deal with her after the job is done. Superman watches the crooks leave and swears he'll deal with them in time, but first, he has to save Lois. Leaping down to the street, Superman digs into the ground around the building. He then plunges his fingers into the cement foundation and rips out a section to free Lois. After loosing Lois from her bonds, he takes her back to her apartment, chiding her along the way for getting involved with someone as dangerous as Pinelli. Realizing that she's determined to stay involved despite his warnings, Superman ties Lois up and leaves her hanging from the chandelier in order to keep her out of trouble, before leaping out the window as Lois screams at him in anger. At the warehouse, Pinelli and his men subdue the watchman and begin loading the weapons, but are soon met by Superman, who descends through the skylight. After seeing the Man of Steel shrug off their machine gun fire, the thugs try firing a cannon at him, but Superman simply catches the cannonball and wings it back at them, destroying the cannon. Back at her apartment, Lois has somehow freed herself, and while fuming over what Superman did to her, hails a cab and orders the driver to take her to Caxton Warehouse, and to step on it.
At the warehouse, the gangsters have piled into trucks and are starting to leave with their pilfered weapons, but Superman throws the trucks around one by one. Two strips later, Superman has wrecked all of the trucks, save one, and is loading the last of Pinelli's men into that remaining truck. He then sets his sights on Pinelli himself. Pinelli starts to run out of the warehouse, but at just that moment, who should show up? Of course, Lois. And she is quickly held at gunpoint by Pinelli. With Superman at bay, Pinelli orders his men into a nearby tank, and then starts to force Lois inside as well. But Lois is able to break free of Pinelli's grasp and make a run for it. Pinelli retaliates, though, by driving the tank straight at Lois, intent on running her over. Superman snatches Lois from the tank's path, just in the nick of time, and then charges towards the tank, shrugging off a volley of cannon fire. Superman then rips open the tank, picking it up with one hand, and shakes out the goons. Superman deposits the men atop one of the ceiling trusses, and then goes after Pinelli, who is trying to make an escape attempt on a motorcycle. Superman thrusts his hand through the rear spokes, sending the motorcycle careening through a set of swinging doors, right into a room full of explosives. The motorcycle catches fire in the crash, resulting in a huge explosion that levels the entire warehouse, and no doubt kills Pinelli and all of his men. Superman digs through the rubble to find Lois, who is thankfully alive. A pair of police officers soon arrive and demand to know what happened, and Superman tells the officers that Miss Lane will explain, and leaves off. Later, back at the planet, Clark congratulates Lois on her scoop, saying he wished he would have been there himself. And Lois responds, It's a good thing you weren't. You would have been scared to death. The end. So this was a... This was a fun story. Uh, I'll say that much. As for my comments, like with the comics, I'm going to start doing... Uh, well, not page by page, obviously, but, but strip by strip comments. Um, in strip 397, it's interesting seeing a reference to Prohibition here. The repeal of Prohibition happened about six and a half years prior to the story's publication, but it was still, I'm sure, very much in the minds of the older readers of the strip, and it instantly gives you a firm background on the character, you know, that he's a criminal, at least in the context of the time. And I also note here that the setup is very similar to the World's Fair story, which we just looked at last week. They, you know, they go to get something to eat, and they see the story's bad guy plotting his schemes. And moreover, they're both guys who used to be big names, but for one reason or another have fallen out of the headlines. That's pretty much where the similarities end, but I, I just couldn't help noticing that, especially since the World's Fair book first went on sale right, at, right as the story was wrapping up. In Strip 398, we get a nice little bit of Lois tripping the waiter. It's funny and, and very much something that seems in character for Lois, especially at this stage. And I liked how the waiter just punched Clark dead in the face, right in the middle of the restaurant. Uh, sure, it turns out that he's evil and in league with Pinelli, but my first thought was, well, he's not getting a tip. Uh, and we also get a line here, it's not a thought balloon like we think of today, but clearly something that Clark is thinking as it's offset by uh, parentheses, but he says, time for me to resume my pretended cowardliness, and they've been adding more and more of these lately, it seems, the, uh, the what is now considered the typical characterizations, you know, they're, they're slowly becoming the standard. Going ahead to strip 400, 
we get a nice panel here of Clark taking off his shirt to reveal the Superman costume underneath. The S-Shield on his chest in this story is large and in charge. And this is really the largest we've seen it in any story to date. It shrinks slightly later in the story, but here it takes up the majority of his chest, and it looks really awesome. Since the art here is obviously uncolored, we, we don't know the, the color scheme, but the S itself is slightly stylized. The shield part itself is actually shield-shaped, you know, the, the pentagon, rather than the inverted triangle. I think, with the exception of size, it looked pretty much like this in the last newspaper storyline. This strip also sees the addition of the S-Shield in some of the narrative boxes, like they've been doing in the comic books, so it's nice to see that carried over. Between that and the rapidly growing S on his chest, I think it's safe to assume at this point that they've figured out that the S.H.I.E.L.D. is a very iconic and recognizable part of the character. And I can't help but wonder how much Batman had to do with that. Almost right from the beginning, the creators on the Batman strip did a lot with the bat symbol. Even though the one on his chest was small and, and grew in size over time, just like Superman's, Batman originally had the, the wing-shaped cape that let him cast the bat shadow on the wall, and there were stories where he'd leave a note signed with the bat symbol. And the artists on the strip used the, you know, the, the bat symbol in other ways, too. So I, I can't help but wonder if that didn't influence, even subconsciously, you know, I wonder if that influenced them somewhat in playing up the shield in the Superman stories. And I wonder if any of the pulp characters prior to Superman had a recognizable symbol that got used like that, you know, like the Shadow or the Phantom. I know they both have their iconography these days, but I just don't know how big of a part of their characters and stories that was prior to the debuts of Superman and Batman. Uh, drop me an email if you know, because I'm kind of curious about that. Strip 401, this is an interesting tactic that Siegel took with Pinelli, making him a fallen crime boss wanting to get back on top. He really didn't do much with it in this story, but it's, it's a very believable, believable motivation. I can't seem to talk today. I kind of wish storytelling in this era would have allowed for more in-depth characterization because it's a motivation that we just really haven't seen in villains to this point. But it's, you know, at the same time, it's hard to fault Siegel or the story for that because it just wasn't done in 1940. Skipping ahead to strip 404, I love this bit when Superman rescues Lois. He he rips a hole in the wall and Lois says, "It's It's Superman! And Superman replies, Right, and I've got a complaint. Rescuing you from scrapes takes up so much of my time, I have hardly time for anything else. Oh, Superman, if you only knew the amount of time that you're going to spend rescuing Lois over the next 70 plus years. And it's interesting, too, because in the panel right before that, you know, before Superman comes in, Lois is talking to herself, saying that she should have listened to Clark and that she was a fool for going after Penelope alone. But then in the next strip, Superman has rescued her and is chiding her a bit, you know, telling her to stay away from Penelope. And she says, I'm a newspaper woman, and danger is my job. And then she's very adamant that she's going after Penelope no matter what Superman wants her to do, which then, you know, leads to the bit with him tying her to the chandelier. But I just thought that was an interesting character moment for Lois. 
she knows going after Penelope is dangerous. And I think way deep down inside, there's a little twinge of regret. But she's going to do it anyway because she's Lois Lane. Keep that in mind later in the story. Uh, let's see, jumping ahead to strip 407. Ah, but we get to really what is strip 407 until the end of the story. I I hate to be nitpicky on stuff like this because I know it's the golden age and there's a certain amount of oddness that goes along with that, but they are inside a warehouse and they fire a cannon at Superman, which, okay, maybe, but then Superman throws the cannonball back at them, resulting in this huge explosion inside a warehouse. And just a little bit later, Superman is throwing trucks and and the, the thugs pile into a tank and start firing at Superman with the tank. It just seems like an awful lot of explosions and gunplay and, and other you know dangerous activity in a, such a small, confined space. And as far as the tank goes, <laughs> I admit I, I don't know a whole lot about tanks, but um, I, I don't think you can just get in one and start it up and begin firing. And even if it is that simple, I doubt the military would store them in such a way that it could be done. But again, it's Golden Age comics. Sometimes you just have to overlook these things. You know, I, I'm not going to say it ruined the story for me because it didn't, but it, it did really stand out. Uh, my next comment is in strip, skipping ahead to strip 411. We get a nice moment when Lois is being held at gunpoint by Pinelli. And this is what I mentioned just a minute ago. She turns to Superman and says, I'm sorry I didn't take your advice and keep clear of this, Superman. And he replies, If you had, you wouldn't have been Lois Lane. And I just loved that. That's that's very awesome. Siegel is definitely figuring out what works in the strip and what makes the characters tick. And it's been so much fun seeing what will become their iconic personality traits bubble to the surface and get, you know, cemented to the character. Even in characters like Lois, who, you know, has really been there pretty much since the beginning. The last comment is in the final strip, uh, strip 414. We get a, a great panel of Lois in the rubble of the warehouse that just collapsed, and Superman throwing aside some timbers to rescue her. And we get another nice, but way too short character moment with Superman here saying, if you're injured, I'll... And then realizing that Lois is okay, and you can just imagine this this sigh of relief. And I really like that. Of course, it leaves Lois wondering, you know, if Superman really cares about her, and telling him she wants to see him again soon as he leaps off. But we've seen that kind of thing before. Overall, this story was just, you know, a lot of fun. Lots of action here. Um, this felt like a typical Superman story but in a very good way. The killing of Pinelli and his thugs and the, the silliness with the firing of tanks and cannons indoors aside, I really did like this one. Siegel could have expanded in some ways, as I mentioned, but again, that has more to do with the era than any failings in Siegel's writing. He's clearly figuring out what works with the strip and the characters in his stories lately, and I'm really looking forward to what's coming if this is, you know, any indication at all. The art in this set of strips is just fantastic all the way through. Superman looks really great. Uh, he's been 
a lot more barrel-chested lately, and this set of strips continues that. Clark and Lois both look good. Pinelli doesn't look like a stock villain. Uh, there's detail and, and fairly lush backgrounds in the panel where needed. I wish I had more to say about it because it's just really great stuff. Even though, like I said, there's a lot of hands in the artistic kitchen on these strips, they're really gelling together and, and putting out some great work. Be sure to check out the show notes for the for scans from this story. This story has been reprinted, like all the recent newspaper stories, in the second volume of dailies from Kitchen Sink, and you can also find it online for free at dccomics.com, and I will link to that in the show notes. On May 30th, 2011... DC Comics announced the historic renumbering of all their superhero titles, and the internet broke in half. That's not true. That's impossible. Critics and naysayers abounded. Confusion reigned across fandom. What'll I do? What'll I do? What an unusual view. Not to mention the first reactions to the Supergirl costume. I hated her so much. It, it, the, it flame, flames, flames on the side of my face, breathing, breath, heaving breaths, heaving. But then the books actually hit. And opinions? He likes it. He likes it. Opinions began to change. The New 52 Adventures of Superman is a monthly podcast where John Wilson, J. David Weider, and Michael Kaiser take a look at each of the adventures of Superman and his family of characters in Action Comics. You know the deal, Metropolis. Treat people right or expect a visit from me. The Superman who appeared six months ago could hurdle skyscrapers and toss trucks around. Now it's faster, now it's stronger. How soon before it can't be stopped? Superboy. If resolving a situation for him is going to get me out from under these people once and for all, that's a small price to pay for freedom. Release the Superboy. Supergirl. Okay. Giant metal creatures. Falling from the sky. Speaking in clicks and beeps. Father would love this dream. And Superman. You could do so much good. We could do so much good. I am doing good, Lois. Clark's such a loner. Never really lets anyone get close to him. The New 52 Adventures of Superman. Available the first of every month on iTunes and at new52superman.libson.com. Superman, a name known throughout the world, to all ages, races, creeds, and colors. But what about those behind the shield? Men and women who for over 75 years have given us a legend.
These are their stories. Ned Weaver was born Edward Hooper Weaver on April 27, 1899 in New York City. Weaver is perhaps best known to Superman fans as the voice of Superman's Kryptonian father, Jor-El, in the premiere episode of the radio serial in 1940. But Weaver's career in entertainment began much earlier, and in a slightly different form. As early as his senior year as a student at Princeton University, Weaver was writing music, having written the lyrics and book for Princeton's Triangle Club theater troupe which today is the oldest touring collegiate musical comedy troupe in the United States. In 1924, he was a musical contributor and performer in the Broadway musical The Grab Bag. Weaver followed this up with performances in other Broadway productions over the next decade, including The Second Little Show in 1930, Days to Come in 1936, and Case History in 1938. In 1933, Weaver became a member of the music licensing firm the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers, also known as ASCAP. In addition to his work on Broadway, he continued writing music and lyrics for songs that would be performed by some of music's top performers. Eventually, however, he moved west from his Connecticut home in hopes of gaining work as a dramatic actor in the burgeoning industries of radio, film, and television. From the 1930s to the early 1950s, Weaver held roles in a variety of radio programs, including Showboat, Big Sister, Young Witter Brown, The Shadow, Treasury Star Parade, Cavalcade of America, X-1, and many, many more. He also portrayed the lead character in the Mutual Network's Bulldog Drummond, and starred as Detective Dick Tracy for nearly a decade, from 1935 to 1944. In both the 1939 audition recording and the 1940 premiere episode of the Superman radio serial, Weaver portrayed Jor-El, Krypton's foremost man of science and father of Krypton's sole survivor, the baby who would grow to become Superman, the Man of Steel. Afterward, Weaver continued to appear occasionally on the show, portraying a variety of villains and supporting characters, including the show's first villain, the Wolf, as well as the character of Sidney in the famed Adam Man storyline from the mid-1940s. As radio dramas began to die out in the mid-1950s, Weaver, like many actors, turned to on-camera roles in film and television. He appeared in films such as The Shaggy Dog, Some Came Running, and Anatomy of Murder. On television, he was cast in supporting roles on shows including Perry Mason, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and Petticoat Junction. His last credited role was in a late 1968 episode of Get Smart, after which he seemingly retired from acting. Ned Weaver died in Laguna Hills, California on May 6, 1984, at the age of 85. While Weaver is probably best known or best remembered for his work on radio, television, and film, he was also an accomplished and talented songwriter and performer, contributing songs to some of the music industry's biggest names, including Benny Goodman, Roy Rogers, Eddie Fisher, and more. Because there probably won't be too many people I spotlight on the show that have that type of credentials, I thought it would be, would be nice to do something a bit out of the ordinary and close out this spotlight with a selection of music 
written or co-written by Ned Weaver. As is the case with a lot of music that's nearing the 75 or 80 year old mark, the quality isn't quite what we might be used to from today's you know, digitally enhanced sound, but I, I think it's enjoyable just the same. I will be sure to put a list of song titles and performers in the show notes, but for now, just sit back, relax, and enjoy some music written and authored by Radio's first Jor-El, Ned Weaver.
was so gay in love, eager to stay in love, dream life away in love, heart to heart, trouble in paradise, ended our dreams, trouble in paradise, About love's invitation Come to me Without more speculation Have no fear Give me your hand, my dear Trust in me and all you do Only you trust in me Come to me when things go wrong Cling to me and I'll be strong We can get along As long as you trust in me Now listen, it's not your fault. You did all you could. Everyone did everything they could. Now you've got to get on with your life. We all have. The battle is over. 
a hero has fallen. Miss Lane, I monitored Superman when I arrived. I cannot pick up any brain activity at all. As the city mourns, a family comes to grips with the loss of their son. <sighs> I keep coming back here to the North Pasture, to where he first came into our lives, to say goodbye. His fellow heroes feel regret. Oh, if only I could have helped him, Lex. While his enemies see opportunity. Well, now I'm back on top. And you can't do one blessed thing about it. You're dead. You're nothing. Metropolis is mine again. And you are an empty lifeless, withering husk. Worst of all, his true love has to learn to live without him. Goodbye, Kal-El. This January, from Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast presented by supermanhomepage.com and supermanpodcastnetwork.com begin their coverage of the second part of the Death and Return of Superman trilogy. Every Thursday, you are invited to join hosts Michael Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor as they explore how his friends, loved ones, bitter enemies, and fellow heroes deal with the loss of the Man of Steel. A city in mourning. A world without Superman. A funeral for a friend. folks that does it for this time next episode we will be back to the spinner rack for a look at action comics number 26 as always thank you very much for joining me be sure to send your thoughts comments questions suggestions and love letters to me at thrilling adventures at greatcrypton.com i also invite you over to the website where you will find show notes and links to back episodes the site will also give you the rss feed and the itunes link both of which can be used to subscribe to the show so that you never miss an episode. You can also find the show on Facebook and Twitter, and links to both of those can be found at the site as well, or just search for the show yourself on the social media site of your choice. 
All of that can be found at greatcrypton.com, along with other Superman and comic book related posts whenever the mood strikes me. I'm currently in the middle of a four-part retrospective on Superman's involvement in the Batman, the Brave and the Bold cartoon and comic book, which has been a whole lot of fun putting together. Don't forget the always awesome Superman homepage, as well as the Superman Podcast Network. Both are great for filling your needs for Superman information and, and entertainment. And lastly, I invite you to check out Green Lantern's Light, which I co-host with Jeffrey Taylor and J. David Weeder. That's a monthly show where we look at Green Lantern comics from the mid-80s going forward until, well, whenever we quit, which hopefully will be a long time from now. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. So thanks again for listening to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, and I will talk to you all later. Goodbye. Super Mr. Potato Head from Hasbro Preschool.